This program is brought to you by Jim Humble's MMS. It's been a few years since we sold MMS, so I have great news. I'm happy to report that MMS is back on the Veritas store or at gotmms.com. We have found a new supplier that meets all our quality standards. All of our MMS Miracle mineral products are made using the Jim Humble specifications using high-quality EPA-registered sodium chloride made in the USA. Go to the Veritas store or gotmms.com for all your MMS needs. Don't delay. I don't know how long we'll be able to keep it on our website. Make your purchase today at gotmms.com or the Veritas store. Thank you. you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Communism, in terms of crude numbers, must be reckoned the most lethal ideology ever devised by human intelligence. The Atlantic slave trade killed 10 million people. The Nazis killed maybe 17 million people. Communism killed 100 million people. So why is it acceptable to wear a Che Guevara t-shirt now? Why isn't that in the same moral category as wearing an Adolf Hitler t-shirt or an Osama bin Laden t-shirt? There is a socialist undercurrent growing in this country. Why am I so passionate in bringing this out in my own non-political platform? Because my family lived through it and I know the signs and many are now living through it today. And even though we have the media and images emanating from those places, warning us on a daily basis, we have professors infecting our youth with this ideology. This cancer is being harvested in our colleges and universities. The idea of socialism is being glorified, in fact, glamorized to young people. Socialism hasn't worked in the last 100 years despite 100 failed experiments. It's a disastrous ideology and a national security threat. The goal of socialism is communism. The problem with socialism is that you eventually run out of other people's money. Socialism is a philosophy of failure, the creed of ignorance, and the gospel of envy. Its inherent virtue is the equal sharing of misery. I am tired of hearing what is politically correct I want to see more of what is morally correct. Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fabregas at Veritas Radio. If you want to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. I always love to hear from you. And to tell us more, tonight's special guest is a Veritas veteran and friend, Dr. Brooks Agnew. Dr. Agnew is a scientist, engineer, radio host, a modern-day John Galta, and six-time Amazon best-selling author. His latest book is titled Charm of Favor, a true story of the rise of the Clinton crime syndicate. And we have a more comprehensive bio on our website. His website is x2-radio.com or xsquaredradio.com. Dr. Brooks Agnew joins us directly from Dallas, Texas. Hello, Brooks, and welcome back to Veritas. How are you? 
Wow, thank you so much. It's great to be here. Great to have you back. It's been probably about six years. Feels longer than that. But lately, I've seen a lot of your posts. And this whole socialism meme that's out there, thats it's really capturing a lot of ground. I don't know why, but I wanted to bring you here because you're one of the smartest people I know. And, you know, you can enlighten us as to what is really transpiring here. Well, you kind of touched on it a little bit. You know, a lot of people don't realize this. They, they would if they read the book. But uh, the, the world was ruled for about 5,000 years by one man. Now, I mean, not one man living 5,000 years, but I mean, one monarch usually ran the whole planet. If it was an emperor or a king. And it was pretty much that way until 1776, when a group of men sat down and said, look, we already know what the future is laid out before us. We're reading it right here in the Bible. Let's choose another future. Let's choose to build a new country. We can start fresh here, an ocean away from the strongest king in the world. We can make a nation based on unalienable rights, rights that come from God. We can make a government that is actually ruled by the people instead of the other way around. We can put safeguards in place to prevent the government from doing anything that it's not allowed to do. And so that's what they said about doing. Well, of course, we fought a revolutionary war over it. And uh, the journey is kind of divided on why the colonialists actually won that war against the most powerful Navy, the most well-trained and well-funded army in the world. But we did. And for 242 years, that force out there that, that ruled the world for all those millennia has wanted it back. And they have tried to defeat America several different ways. But America isn't just a land. America is a people, one people, multiple colors, multiple religions, multiple creeds, multiple languages, but one people. We act like one people. We become Americans when you come here. There's, there's something that, that frees up in the soul when you get to grow something and keep what you grow. Or if you want to change from being a, a baker to being a doctor, or you want to change from being a, uh, a house painter to a philosopher, you can do that. You can do anything you set your mind to in this, in this country. That is not the way the world was set up 242 years ago. Now, it's interesting. You see this, this government you talked about creeping into into power in 1933. It happened before that, actually. Just a few years after the country went through the Revolutionary War and the Constitutional Convention in 1787, it did not take long, about 30 years, and two political parties kind of began to coagulate. One was called the Anti-Federalists, and the other was called the Whigs. Well, the Anti-Federalists in 1848 decided to establish 
a political party called the Democrat Party. It didn't take them but five years to put together a system of taxation called a tariff of abominations. And what they did is they used our own system of government to use the population of the northern states to overpower the less populated southern states and force taxes upon them, just like King George had on the colonies. He taxed everything that went in, everything that went out, and it was the same thing with these anti-federalists, these Democrats against the South. And they ended up breaking the South. The South could not find redress. They couldn't go to Congress, no matter how many speeches they made, no matter how many bills they introduced. Congress would just overrule them, and they never got anything done. So they said, well, we've had enough. So they put together a system and uh, letters of grievance, and they filed them in Congress, and they said, that's it. We're out of here. And by the way, those letters looked almost exactly like the same letters that the 13 colonies had filed against King George just a few years before. Well, Lots of arguments over what went on during the Civil War, but the bottom line is this. The Southern states were forced by force. A million Americans died, and they were forced back into the, into the Union. Ever since then, and I'm talking since 1863, the Democrats have ruled this country. They've controlled Congress. They've controlled the Senate. And there's not one single year in the entire history of the United States when the Republicans have had 60 votes in the Senate. That's how much control they've had. Now, the issue is that you can trace the genealogy of these presidents all back to one family, all, all of them, until now. In 2016, they were putting the final nails in a bridge that would let the socialists, and I don't mean just socialism, I mean the socialists, into our country to take it over from top to bottom. You mentioned you know, socialism being the, the, the doctrine of you know, darkness. It is, but not for the socialists. For the socialists, it's the greatest thing since, I mean, unbelievable. You're talking more money than than 10 men could spend in a hundred lifetimes. More luxury, more power, more appetite than you could imagine. For the people living under socialism, it is poverty, devastation, ignorance, and death. So you're exactly right. It's equality of misery, basically. Well, that's exactly right, because there's no upward mobility. There's no chance for anybody to to climb out. And you can see it very clearly in the young and the ignorant. Look at look at uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Yeah. She very innocently stands up and says, look, socialism's great. It's only going to take, what, two, three, ten trillion dollars to have what we want? The rich have this. They have this. We could just take it from them, and we'd have free health care and free education. Well, you know what it'd be worth if it was free? Nothing. But uh, the point is that she doesn't get it. She doesn't understand what 
socialism is like. But we bought into it. Absolutely, we bought into it. You mentioned uh, 1933 and when Roosevelt was president. Roosevelt became president. He was the governor of New York. And uh, we'd just gone through the crash of 1929. The globalists had dried up the money supply and forced the Roaring Twenties to a grinding halt, which actually crashed the entire world. Yeah, by calling the loans. Yeah, they were clever about it. Because what they did is they not only collapsed the money supply, but they also collapsed the wage and price tables. So there were basically only two classes. One was in poverty, and the other was a billionaire. But the billionaire had the best of all possible worlds because prices were so cheap they could buy steamships for a dime and entire city blocks for a few dollars. And that's exactly what they did. So when Roosevelt came to power, one of the things that he could not get done was anything using our system of government. So what did he emulate? Well, he emulated fascism. He loved Mussolini. He emulated Mussolini. In fact, Mussolini and Roosevelt shared so many ideas that they they literally emulated each other. And Roosevelt made no bones about it. He liked fascism. He instilled fascism in this country. And fascism, for people that are listening, don't know what that means. This is a corporate government. This is where government is in place for two reasons. One is to provide a never-ending flow of underwriting so that corporations can take risks. The other is to use laws and regulations to prevent anyone from competing against them. That's fascism. So, and that's that's what they had set up. It worked so well that we were able to fund, you know, two global wars, but uh, uh, the crazy thing about it is that um, they began to put what I call the agency government together. We went from 13 or 14 cabinet positions, 14 agencies, to now today we have 605 agencies. And they write our laws, they assess our taxes, they assess our fees, they put enforcement actions together, they control our commerce, our communications, our speech, but there's one problem. We have no representation at all in that government. And that is the purest definition of tyranny. That is what Roosevelt set up. So essentially, this corporation operates like any other. They have a president, a treasurer, a board of directors, and so on. And our vote means nothing. They basically choose that person to be the next puppet. Yeah, and in case people are doubting that, all you have to do is pick a hearing. Pick any hearing you want. Senatorial hearing, a congressional hearing, a joint hearing, any of the hearings you want. Watch it for a week. You will see witnesses and and people that they subpoena coming in and speaking before Congress and speaking before the Senate. You've watched the FBI totally thumb their noses at Congress. We've seen <laughs> like attorney, Yeah, we've seen attorneys general say, contempt of Congress, you guys gotta be kidding me. I'm gonna run for president in three years. 
There's nothing you can do about it. Contempt of Congress. Hillary. They laugh. Yeah, right. Exactly. Eric Holder. Just and and they have no power if they subpoena you and you say, you know what? Uh, I think I'm going to go walk the dog. Yeah, I think that's pretty important. My dog needs me. You don't have to go, and there's nothing they can do about it. They can't arrest you. They can't fine you. They can't sue you. They can't get a judgment against you. Congress is powerless. But the agencies, the agencies are very, very powerful. The Environmental Protection Agency can bring an entire multi-billion dollar corporation to its knees. 1933, as you were mentioning that year, the gold confiscation. You probably heard about it during the FDR's time. It was a bailout of the Federal Reserve. Why do you think this happened? Well, when you had the uh, the uh, money supply collapse, the money supply was created, but it was also backed uh, by gold. Every Every dollar was backed by silver and gold Great. in those days. And so when the money supply was collapsed, the only thing you had left were hard assets. But the problem is the hard assets could not be a system of exchange. You couldn't, you know, trade a farm for a road, for instance. You just, it, there was no system of exchange. The only system of exchange was actual currency. So what uh, Roosevelt decided to do was to pull all of the actual value behind the money into government ownership. I mean, they gathered up all the coins for sure, but they also went after rings and, you know, nuggets and even gold mines. They took whole mines over because they wanted the hard assets as part of the government, but they also wanted to keep private industry from getting their hands on those assets. You know, you recall a, a, a novel that Frank L. Baum put out called The Wizard of Oz. I mean, I was read that story as a, chill, as a child. Lots of people have seen the movies. And I ask people today, so tell me, what color were Dorothy's slippers? What do you think they answer? Was it red? Yeah, they say, oh, they were red. They were ruby slippers. That's not true. In Frank Albaum's book, the shoes were silver. They were silver because Frank Albaum had written a satire on populism. There was a populist president, and his name was William Cohen Bryant, who was a serial perpetual, a serial presidential candidate, and he was represented by the cowardly lion in the in the movie. But the Tin Man was the industrial uh, North. The straw man was, you know, the farming south, uh, the wicked witch of the east, the wicked witch of the west. They all had different analogs in industry. But the slippers were silver because we had been taken off the silver standard. And what William Cullen Bryant was trying to do was get the country back on the silver standard because he knew removing that value from the backing of the silver certificate dollar was going to lead to our demise by fiat currency. That's why he said, just click your heels together three times and we can go back to Kansas. 
Well, I think the Federal Reserve has more power than our own executive branch. When you look at what happened in 1933, do you think that the FDR was pushed to do this because the Federal Reserve is losing ground? The value of the money was going down, but people kept their gold. And the way to disarm, quote unquote, disarm the people from their own power, individual power, was by taking that last ounce of gold from the people. Well, you got to put these things in, into the proper sequence, and then you can see the plan. So it was a group of financial, uh, let's call them financial philosophers. In 1910, they had a secret meeting at Jekyll Island, yeah. and they crafted this club. I'm just going to call it a men's club. Uh, a club of half a dozen of the most powerful banks in the world. And they crafted this idea of the Federal Reserve. But it wasn't until three years later, 1913, that they decided to pass the Federal Reserve Act. So the Federal Reserve Act was in place 20 years before Roosevelt became president. But it was a tool, and it needed to be put in place. It needed to be practiced. They needed to... Uh, get the, the the system of exchange in place so that they can move money from currency to currency and be able to manipulate the price of the dollar. That's what it was there for. There wasn't any such thing as the petrodollar in those days. It was the gold dollar. And uh, that's what they needed to remove. They needed to let the dollar float to whatever value they decided to set it at because the Rothschilds had this idea that, and I think it's pretty accurate, even to this day, they believed that they didn't have to be in control. They didn't have to be the president. They didn't have to be the king or the emperor. They believed if they could just control the money supply, they could rule the world. Isn't it interesting that they start, well, 1913, and then I believe it's 1914, they have the Tax Revenue Act because they needed the people to be the ones subsidizing wars and all the expenses with our own labor. Is there That's a correlation right. between those two, the, the Federal Reserve Act and the Tax Revenue Act? Did they know that it was a necessity to, ena to, to enact the second act? Yeah, because the 16th Amendment, which basically gave the federal government the right to levy taxes against income and profit, um, But it had a major flaw the way it was originally written, and it, it almost required a, a, a huge act of intimidation against the American people. And this is why, because the, the original flaw in the document is that it was designed to allow the federal government to levy taxes against profit. But the assumption was that if, let's say you are a, a stonemason, and you have a skill at being able to cut and fit and set stone. So you go to work, and let's say you make uh, $25 an hour doing that. Well, the income tax assessment assumes that your labor is worth zero. It's worth nothing. Therefore, the entire $25 that you received is profit. Where your mind, you're saying, wait a minute, I'm doing $25 worth of labor for an hour, so that's a free and equal exchange. So there's actually no profit. You're getting value, I'm getting value. That's trade, not a profit. 
that is where the the income tax um, amendment, the 16th Amendment, that's where it got its power, is they really had to step on people and make examples of people and companies. And uh, in fact, this is how they brought Al Capone down. In the 1920s, there were lots and lots of criminals that were robbing banks. And one of the ways that they were able to get them is the Internal Revenue Service had such incredible enforcement power. So 1933, we have this situation with the gold confiscation. And then 1944, 11 years later, we have the the advent of the petrodollar by Bretton mm-hmm. Woods. What was the, the, why was the petrodollar inserted into the world economy? This didn't happen until later, wasn't it? Yeah, that's true. Because really, you know, up until, oh, 1912 or so, oil really didn't, didn't play a role in much. Right. In fact, 70, 70% of the vehicles were either electric or diesel, and diesel ran on vegetable oil. They didn't use petroleum for much of anything. And then they passed prohibition, which prevented anyone from making their own alcohol, which was needed to make diesel fuel, and also to drive cars that ran on internal combustion engines. So once the government started to put laws in place, as I told you, they emulated fascism. They loved to use law to prevent companies or innovations from competing against the ideas that they had put in place. So the petrodollar was important because then they were able to control because it was clear that that petroleum was really the key to energy, more so than electricity was. It was the key to energy and energy is the key to power on the earth. So they linked the dollar to petroleum so they could use the price of oil as a weapon, just like we do today. We still use the price of oil as a weapon. That's why President Trump and President Putin and President Xi have kind of got together and said, look, we know there's a glut of oil in the world, but we don't care. We need the price of oil to stay somewhere between 65 and $75 a barrel, or else there's gonna be war. So that's what they that's what they set the price of oil at. We pay two dollars and thirty, two forty, three dollars a gallon, whatever. We stop crying about it. But uh, they need the oil to sell for that much in order for them to have the revenue model for their countries. At one point, I thought that the price of oil was being obviously it's manipulated. Well, it's also plan and demand. Whoever opens their faucets more gets less, and so on. But you have. Putin's Russia in the last few years that suffered greatly because of the price of oil being the, the, the barrel being what uh, 20 30 40 dollars same thing with Maduro's Venezuela but now that the price of oil has stabilized and is in a, a good place in a not super expensive but not cheap either what is that doing to the socialist Venezuela which doesn't seem to come out of their one what is it uh, one, one million percent uh, inflation well we can set let's set Venezuela aside just for one moment, because as you said, when oil gets down cheap, twenty, thirty dollars a barrel, you know what 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 Russia is going to do because over half their GDP comes from the sale of oil. When it gets down cheap, well, they need to expand their horizons. Their the pipeline, 
Yeah, exactly. So they annex Crimea. They 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 push their interests into Ukraine, where they have other natural resources, and that makes everybody nervous because they keep treating Russia like it's the Soviet Union. I don't know why they do that, but they do it. But then we talk about um, Venezuela. This is a this is kind of a unique situation because. Venezuela wasn't socialist. For a long time, it was capitalist. I mean, Exxon and Mobil and BP, everybody invested billions and billions of dollars into Venezuela. It was actually, I think, one of the more modern countries in South America. Their cities, their communication structures, their education, they had great medicine. Lots of things were going for them. Second after Brazil. Yeah, exactly. And Brazil was... You know, one of the main nations in the BRICS, you know, as far as setting up a whole new banking system, a whole new system of of currency exchange. So when socialism went in there, they they got their foothold because the country had kind of a glut of money. It was plenty of money to go around and every everybody wanted a piece of it. So the guy that won the election was the guy that said, look, I'll, I'll give you more of the bank than the next guy will. And finally they got to the point where, um, when the price of oil dropped, there wasn't enough revenue to go around. And of course that's what causes the crash of the system. The, the model of socialism doesn't work. Margaret Thatcher uh, probably put it the best. She said, socialism's great until you run out of other people's money. Well, that's exactly what Venezuela did. They ran out of other people's money. And now you can see what happens. And the road back is not going to be easy for them. I was recently in Florida going to Cuba to show my wife and daughter the <laughs> what socialism could do to the United States. But I, was, I stopped in, in Miami. I took an Uber. And uh, the driver was from Venezuela. And we were talking about what's happening there. And he said, one dollar, one U.S. dollar can buy him 30 full tanks in Venezuela right now. It's subsidized oh completely. But people cannot buy oil. So they're basically stealing everybody's oil from their car. So why is it that people think, oh, that is that is government assistance or government-sponsored? Instead, why can't people say that is taxpayer-sponsored? And if you remove the taxpayer from the system because there's no private industry, where is the government getting the funds from to subsidize everyone else? Well, that's funny. That's exactly the question that was put to Ocasio-Cortez last week. They asked her, so Medicare for all, where do you get the money to pay for that? And she said, well, you get it from the government. And the interviewer couldn't help herself. She said, well, I mean, the government doesn't really have money. Where does the government get the money? Where is the government going to get the money for all this additional expense? And what she said was, well, we'll, we'll raise the corporate tax rates. Corporate rates are too low. We'll do away with the tax cut. And then, then she goes on, she goes on, she says, and then, you know, that's before we put the, the carbon tax in place. The carbon tax will bring in $2 trillion. And she said, and you combine these two together, then everyone will have free education, everyone will have free health care, and everyone will have a basic minimum uh, living wage of $15 an hour. And these are really good things. 
And I, I, I think the, the interview was pretty much over because the interviewer really didn't want to press her into, you know, showing how ignorant she was any further. They just let her smile and, you know, let her wave her hands around and, and uh, look pretty. I think more people want to know what shampoo she uses than <laughs> what her economics are right now. Well, even the, I don't mean to bring Israel up, but she even said, I'm not sure if it's uh, it's the first name of the, or the last name, but Mr. Israel needs to get out of Gaza. And I know this is a very <laughs> sensitive topic on this program, but I laughed when I heard that. Yeah, that was, uh, that was funny. And, you know, I don't really understand all the, the history of who did what first over there, but it seems like some one-upmanship. I have friends that are uh, from Palestine, and I have friends that are from Israel. Same here. And, and uh, I will tell you, they they just naturally don't like each other. And I never I've tried to resolve it because they're both my friends, but I can't get them to talk because they just they just don't want to listen. But the but, point about uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez by saying that, I mean, and she said, "Oh well, uh, geopolitics is not my forte." I mean, what is her forte? It's not economics. It's not geopolitics. What is it? Same thing with, you know, everybody says, oh, you probably see these memes. You and I are active on Facebook because we use it as a tool. But we see these memes all the time. If you miss the Obamas, please share. And just because they had their, they were poised and they spoke well and all that. I mean, do you really want a poker face or do you want somebody who tells it like it is? And we can talk about Trump also in a few minutes. But, you know, talk about that. People are so confused by what a politician should be. Well, that's true. I mean, politician is all about tact. And tact, put simply, is the ability to tell someone to go to hell but make them look forward to the trip. The sandwich technique. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I, I like the memes, too. I sent one out one day because Ocasio has this really expressive face. And one day she had this smile on her face and the whites of her eyes were showing all around. It was a great picture. And I said, it's that face you make when someone asks you a question right off the final exam in your major, but you forgot to go to class. <laughs> right. Because that's, that's where she is. She's, she's totally clueless. And it was kind of interesting today, actually, today, Barack Obama went on his little endorsement tour and he endorsed 81 Democrat politicians. But not her. And he, he very conspicuously left her off the list. Which is interesting because you would think that if Hillary would have won, We would have gotten the Trans-Pacific Partnership. We would have gotten so many other... Pro We'd probably be at war with Russia by now. And oh, these, yeah. you know, in the 70s and 80s when I grew up, I remember anybody who had left-leaning tendencies, you know, watch it, watch that commie, blah, 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 the pinko. The ideologies that killed over 100 million people last century are being praised at our universities today. This would not have happened in the 60s, 70s, and 80s with the Soviet Union being still alive, but it's happening now. Are the Bolsheviks moving here? And how are we allowing this if this is becoming, in my opinion, a national security threat, Brooks? Well, here's where people miss this. And, and unfortunately, the work is done, the documentation is out there, but it doesn't get publicized very much except on programs like ours. 
You see, the Soviets actually infiltrated the White House of the United States in 1933. They had agents working inside the White House, totally, totally compromised it. There was an agent whose name was Harry Hopkins, and he was basically Roosevelt's right-hand man. They kind of shared uh, infirmities, and uh, they had a bond. And Harry Hopkins was very trusted by Roosevelt. Harry Hopkins, they used to call him the co-president, not the vice president, but the co-president. John Nance Garner was actually the vice president for the first two terms. In 1940, that should have been Roosevelt's last year in office, uh, John Nance Garner was putting forth his um, campaign to run for president. He'd been vice president for eight years. He had a lot of followers, but he was a conservative. So he could not garner enough votes in the Democrat Party to get the nomination. So it turned out to be a brokered convention, just like Jeb Bush and and Ted Cruz wanted to do. They wanted to do a brokered convention. Well, this brokered convention went to Chicago in 1940. In 1940, a letter was sent to the floor of the convention. The letter was ostensibly written by Roosevelt. Actually, it was written by Harry Hopkins. I'll read it. I'll, I'll kind of recite it a little bit like it might have been read on the floor that day. Uh, it is a letter to the delegates on the floor of the convention. And he was the Secretary of Commerce. Yes. And so here's what he said. Basically, this letter was written by, uh, was read by one of the senators. And it was something like this. You know, I have no desire to run for president of the United States of America. I have served my time, and you know, like that. Then he says, so I encourage you to vote for whoever you see fit. And then in the basement of the convention, Harry Hopkins had the superintendent of utilities for Chicago sitting in front of a microphone. He keyed the microphone and he began to say, we want Roosevelt. We want Roosevelt. Of course, it came out over the loudspeakers over everybody. And what happened? Everybody on the floor said, you know, chanted right with it. We were just like CNN sucks. Well, as soon as the noise would die down a little bit, the party bosses would step forward to their microphone and say, Iowa cast the delegates for Roosevelt and then Nebraska and then Virginia and on it went. And even though Roosevelt's name wasn't even on the ballot, he'd already served two terms. He won 86% of the delegates that day, and he started serving his third term. Well, John Nance Garner went back to Texas. They called him Cactus Jack. He was a pretty tough guy. Went back to Texas, and he almost committed suicide. It was just his family's love that kept him alive. But Roosevelt needed a new vice president, so who did he pick? Truman. Truman was a liberal through and through. First term went fine. Roosevelt's getting sicker and sicker by the day, and he dies about a year and a half into his fourth term. Truman becomes president. One of the things that he loves to inherit is this corporate government that he and Harry Hopkins, the Soviet spy, had put together. 
And so he helped after he bombed Japan, he helped the the world basically get back on its feet by using this corporate government inside our government to make things happen quicker without elections, without majorities or filibusters or cloatures or anything like that. It just went through. Well, they liked it. They liked it so well that not long after that, another president comes forward. His name is Jimmy Carter. And Jimmy Carter is such a feckless president, stuck in the middle of a created energy crisis. He needs to get stuff done, and he can't. So what does he do? He draws on this corporate government, and he establishes something. He establishes something called the Senior Executive Service. What he did is he took these old bureaucrats, and he made them permanent employees of the federal government. He gave them the same salary as the vice president, and he made them unaffected by the rule of the executive. In other words, the president could not fire them. And they varied in number from about 500 up to about 1,500, depends on who's president. Right now, there are almost 700 of these guys and women in business in Washington, and they run the government. And there's nothing. Congress can't stop them. The Senate cannot stop them. The president cannot touch them because they're in the senior executive service. One of those guys is Peter Strzok. They cannot fire him. He is a CIA agent that was placed inside the FBI by Brennan under Obama's direction to take over the opposition research firm, otherwise known as the FBI, for the Democrats. That was his job. That's why they couldn't fire him, because he's a member of the SES. I saw the hearings a few weeks ago, and it was just laughable, because for the first time, and I've heard what you just said before, that the Congress really has no power over these type of people. And the way he was responding saying, I've been instructed, and you, you saw the counsel behind him whispering in his ear every couple of seconds, you really honestly felt like the there was impotence coming from the government side. And this guy was and, just going to, yeah. Yeah, and keep in mind, this was the public part of the hearing. He was even more thoroughly in the private one. He was even in, in more the closed door, you mean? One. Yeah, in the, in the closed door when they couldn't touch him. And he just laughed at them. He'd, and and you really want to see how this works. You remember when Mark Zuckerberg was sitting on his booster seat in front of the committee? Oh, yes. You remember the questions that they all asked him? Laughable. Exactly. Do you know why? Because he gives money to all those people for, for re-election. Well, yeah. He gives money, but he also gives exposure. Because... Every single suit in that room knew that if he put them in Facebook jail for 30 days, they would yeah. lose their election. Wow. How is that not a monopoly? Um, well, it, Facebook is unique. Um, DARPA was putting together a program to gather all the data on every single person, everything, their email, their phone numbers, where they live, how much money they spend, where they work, what their credit rating is, everything in one file on everybody. 
And what happened was Congress said, look, we can't do this. We cannot allow a federal agency to have this much information on everybody. This metadata is so powerful. I mean, look what Obama did with it in 2008. He was a nobody. I mean, Hillary Clinton was a household name the world over. And he was a nobody with a middle name like Hussein. And he beat her by the third primary because of his power in using data. So they stopped it. They said, we were not going to do this. The next day, Facebook was founded and they did exactly that. Why do you think that Obama won and not Hillary? Well, I will tell you, I know exactly why. You're talking in 2008, right? Correct. Okay. What happened was the Clintons are part of a syndicate that goes back a long, long time. When they got access to the drug cartel money in the 90s, they were able to put together billions of dollars, which was a lot of money in the 90s. Trouble is, it's all off-the-books money. It's not money you can put in the bank. It's not money you can use for a campaign. So what they did is they put it in manila envelopes, and they sent it to individuals in Washington who very happily put that money in their back pocket. That's how she bought the superdelegates in 2008. She thought that they had paid for the superdelegates, and so therefore she would win. It wouldn't matter what Obama did because she would do the same thing to him that she did to Bernie Sanders. But the trouble is, Bill Clinton is much wiser when it comes to these things. He knew Hillary was not a charismatic, but he could see the charisma in Barack Obama. So here's what he did. He went to the Obama campaign, Bill Clinton did, and he said, I'll tell you what we'll do. We will withdraw from the campaign. And uh, the only condition that we have is... Secretary of State. No, no, no. No, no, that's the second deal. The condition we have is you pay off Hillary's campaign debt. Oh, man, let me tell you, Michelle Obama was fit to be tied. If she'd have owned a shotgun, she'd have killed them both. But they stewed on it for a week, and finally their camp came together and said, okay, okay, we'll pay off Hillary's campaign debt if you promise to drop out of the election. And Bill said, great, it's done. Oh, one more thing. Hillary gets to be Secretary of State for four years. And that's the deal they made. Because Bill Clinton knew if Barack Obama would take all the slings and arrows, being the charismatic out there in the front, they could sit be just behind the scenes, because he already had this deal working with Uranium One. They could sit just behind the scenes, and they could rake in billions. And when Barack Obama's term was done, they would step right in on his coattails, They'd be the richest, most powerful syndicate the world had ever known. And they were. What about this notion that it keeps going, that the Russians colluded and all that? Isn't what the Democrats want to do by, I mean, look at California and some other states. They want to give illegal aliens voting, the, the right to vote. Isn't that worse? <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, it's clear to say that Mexico has, has colluded a lot worse than, than uh, Russia to affect our elections, no doubt about that. But, you know, this, this goes back to, uh, to just before the election, uh, when uh, the Russians had really done nothing uh, more than they normally do, nothing like what Barack Obama did to Israel, sending millions of dollars over there with two groups. I think it was their name was Strategy 270, and there was another company he sent over to Israel to try to use their data mining skills to beat Netanyahu. They wanted to remove Netanyahu from power. So they really, really meddled in Israel's election. That's collusion. That's serious meddling with another country's election. But there really wasn't any of this going on between Russia and the United States. Not, not more, not officially and not more than normal. They like to sow chaos, but they, they really didn't have a preference as to who would be president. They didn't like Hillary, that's for sure, but they didn't know anything about Trump. Nobody did. So there really wasn't much evidence there. Um, the hack that took place that they talk about, the DNC being hacked, that didn't come from Russia. It had nothing to do with Russia. That was a hack that was done on the inside. That download happened inside their office. They had a corrupt individual, or actually a gang. We call them the Awan gang. But uh, they'd been in there for 10 years. That's a long time for an IT group. I mean, a long time. They were able to compromise 80 Democrats. That's a lot. And these were not freshmen. These were the senior Democrats, people on the Armed Services Committee, people on, uh, you know, big appropriations committees. They didn't have some of their data. They had all their data. They had their cell phone data. They had their personal uh, digital device data. They had their emails. They had documents that they were emailing back and forth. They had copies of everything. And guess where it was going? It was going to Pakistan, and it was being sold to the highest bidders. Intelligence was being shared with a military startup that Hillary had put together called ISIS. It was a blend of al-Qaeda and a bunch of other uh, paid fighters over there, but they were shipping Libyan weapons, rockets, grenades, missiles, gas, chemicals, all kinds of stuff. Benghazi. From Libya. Yes, Benghazi, right. And I covered that in chapter, uh, chapter four in the book, covers Benghazi from the ground. That happened on September 11th, 2012. On September 16th, 2012. Five days later, I broke the story of what happened in Benghazi. Just now, the documentation to back up that story is being made public. I can't tell you how I got my hands on it. Seth Rich, the name Seth Rich, Rich comes along. You know the name, right? Yes. Do yes, you Seth think Rich he was, was murdered? A, yes, he was. Oh, he was assassinated. Absolutely. Uh, chapter three in the book, I cover the Seth Rich murder, and I put you on the ground the night that he was killed. Uh, I can tell you what I do know. I can tell you what I speculate. What I do know is that he was a DNC campaign worker. He liked the Democrat Party. He liked Bernie. the way the Democrat Party worked. He, he liked Bernie, but he wasn't a Bernie sycophant. What he wanted was Bernie to have a fair chance. 
And what he saw is the underhandedness of what was going on. That's what made him mad. It made him really mad. And he was kind of an idea, uh, not an ideologue, but he was a, um, uh, he was a, a dreamer. He, he really liked democracy. And that was the whole reason he got involved. He was a star-spangled kid, let me tell you. He was a real patriot. And he didn't like what was going on. He didn't think Bernie could win, but he didn't want Bernie to lose that way. And when Hillary had broken into Bernie's database and stolen his donor base, his donor list, in fact, he locked, they locked Bernie Sanders out of his own donor list. They couldn't even send their own donors emails for about three or four days. During that time, of course, Hillary's team just flooded them with, with new information, new emails. They didn't have all their addresses, but they stole it from Bernie. So they decided to file a lawsuit. They needed some information. So I believe what happened is Seth Rich took a memory device, like a thumb drive or an external hard drive, and he downloaded the DNC's database, and he got more than that, way more than that. And he took it to WikiLeaks, and he made the trade. Well, it made the Podesta group so mad that they decided to make an example out of him, and they hired assassins, and they shot him in the back and killed him. I don't know if that's ever going to catch up to them or not, but this is why Julian Assange is in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. If he could get out of there and actually speak to somebody, I know Pamela Anderson has shared some of his ideas with some of Trump's people. Trump likes Julian Assange. There was rumors that while he was in London, he was trying to arrange for the escape of Julian Assange. But there are people inside our government, John Brennan and others, who want Assange dead. In fact, Hillary made the public statement that she wished she could drone him. Oh, I remember that, but I, I have information here stating that in the next few days, Ecuador may be ejecting him out of the embassy and he might be extradited to the United States. Have you heard that? Yes, that's true. And uh, some of my inside contacts say that they're trying to figure out a way to diplomatically get him out of the country and to the United States into protective custody. We may, we may see him disappear. I can I see why. Yeah, I agree with yeah. you, but I, I can see why President Trump wants to. He likes him, obviously. This guy is sharing the truth, but I guess he wants to distance himself from Assange somewhat because he doesn't want people to think, look, he was responsible for switching the election towards Trump. And of course, Trump is going to protect him. So I can see a political wedge there because of that. Well, I, I didn't mention President Trump. I, I don't think that it's going to be that close. I'm thinking more along the lines of Sean Hannity. Mm. Sean Hannity really, he's, he's interviewed him more than anybody. He knows him really well. And Sean Hannity is really rich. And I'm thinking that he has a way and he actually is at, a, is at a point in his career where he doesn't care. He wants to see Julian Assange live and tell his story. Actually, Sean has great respect for Julian because 
Julian really epitomizes what a journalist really is to him. And maybe to me too, because I don't think governments should have secrets. People can have secrets, but not governments. We get in so much trouble when we do. Well, even right now, I mean, do, how many true journalists do we have in mainstream media? Hardly any. To me, the mainstream media is nothing but a propaganda arm of the government. Well, you bring up an, an interesting term, mainstream media. And you made the, uh, the statement earlier that the pollsters missed the Trump election. Actually, not all of them. Uh, I did an analysis in October of 2016. Uh, because I got called by a pollster and I got asked the normal questions, but then I asked the pollster some questions because they called my landline at the house. And I said, so listen, you only call landlines? And they said, yeah, we only call landlines because we need demographic data. We don't want to call somebody with a, a North Carolina phone number, but they're living in Dallas. We want somebody that's in North Carolina. So I said, okay, that's interesting. I appreciate that very much. So I did, I hung up, I did my research with the phone company and I found out what percentage of homes in America have a landline. It's only 15%. Yeah. And the demographic of the homes that have a landline, they are older than 62 years old. They own their own homes and they Uh, over 85% of them get their news from cable or satellite. So I thought to myself, wait a minute, they're only getting propaganda. And they're the only ones that are being polled. No wonder Hillary's winning. So I decided to run another survey. I asked a thousand people who didn't have landlines, they only had smartphones, who they were going to vote for. Well, 85% of households have a smartphone. 78% of them were voting for Trump. And I asked them, so where do you get your news? And they said, I get it from my phone. Drudge Report, Breitbart, Newsmax, World Net Daily. And guess what? They listened to internet radio as well. It was us. It was you. It was me. It was other conservatives that were out there talking on the real media, which they were holding in their hands. Now, the interesting thing about this, Mel, is in 2012, there weren't smartphones. There were cell phones, but people didn't have smartphones, not really. And there wasn't really a media out there for, smart, for those phones. I mean, the iPhone was there, but not many people were using it for media. In 2016, everything changed. So I did the math. Guess what I came up with? 314 electoral votes for Trump. So I published it. Well, he ended up winning 309. And the five that he missed? New Mexico. <laughs> I was right. I was not a pollster that missed it. I called it dead on the money. And I had my friends saying, oh, he's not going to win Florida. Forget about it. He's not going to win Pennsylvania, Virginia. I said, yes, he will. You watch. Because smartphone owners are the ones that are going to run this election. And that's exactly what happened. And that's why Hillary's people couldn't see it. And you know what? It almost fulfilled the prophecy for me. Because it says in the scriptures, in the last days, there will be great lightness, a great light, but the darkness will not be aware of it. 
It's interesting seeing all these prophecies. We're going to have somebody else in the near future on our show, Mark Taylor. You probably know his name at the Trump prophecies. Yeah. So I just spoke with him. Exactly. I just spoke with him today. Uh, But one last thing before we take a break. Everybody's complaining that the wall, the wall, 21.6 billion is what's estimated. Where's the money going to come from? Well, where did Obama get $150 billion in cash to give Iran? Why? How was it so easy to get pallets and pallets of cash to give Iran? But $21.6 billion is so difficult. But I'll get your answer on the other side about that and many other topics that we have. How can people buy the new book and all your other books and uh, learn about your work and listen to X-Square Radio? Well, the easiest way to get the books is to go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble. They're all listed under my name. Uh, seven of them have been bestsellers, so they're very, very easy to find. And Amazon does a good job in putting some packages together. You can find out about me by going to xsquaredradio.com or brooksagnew.com. Everything's listed there. Everything I'm doing, everywhere I'm going to appear is all there. And one last thing, folks. Sometimes people say to me, you know, do you know Brooks? And of course I do. And I've spent time in person with him. The last time that we spent in person, I was so mesmerized with the conversation we were having at James Gilliland's ranch, the East City Ranch, that I was there for about four or five hours. Didn't know the sun was shining on me. So when people Google my name, my name, and they put images, they see a picture of me that looks like I got burned with third degree burns in my face. <laughs> and that is the picture of that day when I was talking to Brooks. That's how interesting the conversation was. But when we come back, we have another hour of the great information with Dr. Brooks Agnew. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the members section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and other great products. Thank you.